0: This is the Commons LA podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the biblical teachings and sermons from our Sunday gatherings. For more information on how you can get connected at the Commons LA, please check us out online at thecommonsla.com. There's a lot of great information there. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy this week's episode.
1: Everyone. it's good to be with you. Um, we are going to be in Luke 15 today. So, as you can see inside your uh, Sunday liturgy handouts, Luke 15, 1 through 7. If you have a Bible, uh, you can open up there. We are in the last week of a series trying to unpack and examine what the scriptures have to say about the gospel of the kingdom. If you remember, what's our our emphasis for this year? Learning to pray on mission. Learning to pray on mission, yeah. So we just humbly acknowledge that we don't feel like we know how to pray, and God has been teaching us and leading us, and that's the reason that we think we don't pray is because no one's ever taught us. And so we've devoted ourselves to saying we will learn to pray. We must learn to pray. And then this year, we added on that little element of turning externally, outside of our church community, to say, what does it look like to learn to pray on mission as those who have been sent by Jesus to love and seek out uh, the lost around us? And so today, for the final kind of examination of this gospel of the kingdom, the good news that actually sends us, uh, we're going to be looking at the heart of the kingdom, the heart of the kingdom, all right? Would you stand with me as we read Luke 15 so that we can posture our bodies with the respect of listening to God's word? And then I'm going to just invite somebody. One of the beautiful things about having a smaller group, got all those ladies going up to women's retreat, is just being able to take advantage of a smaller crowd, meaning uh, I'm going to invite one of you to pray for us um, after we read this. Sound good? So, Lord, um, no, I was going into prayer. Sorry. (laughs) Sometimes you just go in autopilot. All right. Luke 15, 1 through 7. All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to, to him, that is Jesus, and the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the ninety-nine in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. And coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I've found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Someone pray for us? Ask God's Spirit to speak to our hearts and lead us this morning. You already talked, Brian. I'm not going to let you. Brian's trying. Trying to help us out. Thanks, Jacob. Amen. All right, you can take a seat. So, in this parable, we're jumping in to the middle of Luke's gospel. And the context is set in, the, in that first verse, right? It says, All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. So the people that were gathering around Jesus are what Luke identifies as tax collectors and sinners. Okay, anybody have any understanding? Who would that have been? Outca- accountants. <laughs> yeah, you got to have some accounting skills to be a tax collector for sure. Might be a certain kind of accountant. <laughs> um, uh, what did you say again, Connor? Out- outcasts. Yeah, outcasts. These are the people... On the fringes. These are the people that were looked at by the quote unquote uh, upstanding religious Israelites and they were looked down upon. They were looked down upon, but Jesus seemed to attract them. Okay, so a tax collector in this day was an Israelite by birth who had aligned themselves with the government of Rome in order to exact taxes for Rome, which was the occupying force of Palestine at the time. And they would leverage their connections, their community, their standing, and they would go and take from people, uh, their people, the Israelites, in order to funnel it up to Rome. And what they would notoriously do, as we see uh, with Zacchaeus, the tax collector, I believe in Luke 17, no, Luke 19, they would extort more, than they were even told to take on behalf of Rome, and they would threaten people that would not pay them more. So kind of like a little mob-type situation going on, like, hey, I'm going to sick the powers of Rome on you if you don't give me this much money, and imagine if someone came to your door to collect your taxes. We got tax season, like, next month, right? Crazy. And they said, okay, this is how much you owe, and, you know, this this year, in order to, like keep the bills paid for me, I'm going to take this much more from you. But imagine if like we were occupied by Russia and they were doing that, right? So it's it's this, you are an insider working for the external force, the oppressive force. And so you were spurned socially. The person that you would not invite to your party was the one who was extorting you guys on behalf of the occupying power yeah okay, you can kind of you start to understand why these people were pushed out to the perimeter to the fringes of normal society sinners those who had been immersed in lives that were counter to the commands of the Torah um, and typically this would include prostitutes this would include people that um, undoubtedly had horrific stories that led them into lives of um, disobedience to what the religious elite would have said was appropriate for a life of a God follower. And all the tax collectors and sinners were coming to him, were coming to Jesus. I wonder, like, it just struck me as I was devoting time this week to meditating on what Jesus must have been like to be approachable by These people. And they're coming to him, and he must have so much mercy, so much joy about him, so much compassion to direct his attention, his gaze at people who are overlooked. But the Pharisees and scribes, the religious leaders of the day, didn't like it. They're grumbling. They're complaining. They're, in the King James language, says they were murmuring. All right? So Jesus tells a parable. Pharisees, tax collectors, or the Pharisees and scribes, the religious leaders of the day, were saying, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, we hear that, and we're like, awesome, love that about Jesus. But for them, that was a disqualifier of the supposed authority that they thought that he has. They're like, you can't possibly be someone sent from God if you associate with those people. And so Jesus tells this parable. And it's a funny parable. He says, what man among you who has a hundred sheep, imagine a shepherd out in a field, and one of them wanders off. Wanders off. It's probably like doing his count. And 98, 99, whoa, where's my hundredth sheep? Double check, count again. Um, For us dads in the room, we have a hard time keeping up with like three children while our wives are away on women's retreat. I'm like, one, two, three, okay, got three. Brian's got to count to four. It's crazy. (laughs) Lost one at the park the other day. I bet what you didn't do was say, ah. Well, I better better just hunker, hunker down and cut the losses. <laughs> <laughs> and so this man is in a field and Jesus says, which one among you, Pharisees and scribes, you lose a sheep, it wanders off, you count, you get to 99 and you find out one's gone. Which of you would not leave the 99 in the open field in order to go and find the one? Now, um, the joke is kind of counter to the parable because we hear that and we're like, oh yeah, the one is so valuable. Of course, you got to go out and you got to look for one. But the parable's point, its real sting, comes from the fact that any hearer in his day would say, you don't leave the 99 in the field, you do cut the loss. It's not like kids. I mean, with three kids, you could just take the three, the two kids that you still have and say, we're going to go look for, for Adelaide, my actual daughter. Um, for them, you would say, it is more dangerous. It is a greater financial risk, economic risk, for me to leave the 99 to go for the one. I can't leave them. The rest will just start to wander off. If you've ever been around sheep, they're not smart, right? They're, they're just meandering, going wherever they can eat food. That's why they have things like sheepdogs and herders. So they wander off, and you've got to protect them in the wilderness. A wolf comes, you're going to lose a lot more than one. But Jesus says this contradictory lesson to them. And it says, when he has found it, well, he goes after it until he finds it. And when he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. And coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying, rejoice with me because I found my lost sheep. I tell you, In the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Jesus is conveying to the scribes and to the Pharisees whose hearts are cold toward those who are far from God. He is conveying to them the passionate heart of the god they claim to worship or the lost around them. Jesus is telling a parable that contradicts their expectations to surprise them with the heart of God for the very people that they keep on the periphery, that they keep out of the religious system. I wonder how we perceive God's heart for the people around us. I wonder if if you're not someone who follows Jesus this morning, I wonder how you imagine the heart of God this morning towards you. I mean, we come into a space where we're gathering as a church, and it's the easiest thing in the world to assume God wants moral cleanness from me, so i got to get my act together. And before long, we're falling into the same trap that the Pharisees and the scribes were. They thought God wants cleanness from us. And so Jesus says, God is more passionate about the one than he is about the 99 who are clean. The ones who have the appearance of nearness to God, but who are sterile. And so he has this image of the heart of God that's not just contradicting the way that they would have heard A shepherd would care for his sheep and manage his flock and cut the losses, but he's also telling us something about what God wants from us. It is so easy for us to think God wants moral cleanness from us. God just wants me to not sin too badly. And so if you've ever been in that moment where you just feel like you need to manage your sinful desires, you need to just not fail too badly, you need to deny the thing that you really long for and find some like in-between coping mechanism, or sometimes we just fill our life with all sorts of clutter and busyness so that we can... Escape the the angst of trying to commune with the living God that can feel so difficult sometimes. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, at least he's, I believe, cited as saying this, had a hard time finding whether what the source was that he had said it. But he says this: God, the Christian, or being a Christian, is less about cautiously avoiding sin than about courageously and actively doing God's will. Being a Christian, a follower of Christ, is less about cautiously avoiding sin than about courageously and actively doing God's will. I think when I was like praying and trying to press in on in my own heart, because risk is something that I can be very afraid of. Um, one of the things that that I think honestly kind of grips me is if I can cautiously avoid sin, then I can just kind of do what I want. And so I fill my life with things that I can say, well, like it's good. It's a neutral thing. There's nothing inherently bad about. Whatever we can fill our time with, right? You can insert busyness, studying, working on uh, the, the project that you have at work, letting it control you, filling all of your time with these things. So what we end up doing is we fill our life with all these good things, neutral things rather, and we say, well, I'm not actively sinning in these crazy ways like all those other people are. We always have a group that those other people are, and it's not us. And the rules that we define their badness by are the rules that are very easy for us to keep, right? And so pretty soon, we find ourselves in that position of the Pharisee, in that position of the religious leader. And rather than fill our hearts with the passion of our Father in heaven, we just kind of dull our hearts to passion and try and manage our Christian life. And friends, the heart of God that Jesus conveys here invites you and me to see what we are invited into. The Father is passionately pursuing the lost around us. The heart of the kingdom is the passionate love of God that goes and pursues those who don't know him yet. He's, he'll leave 99 people that look like they're clean, externally Christians in order to go and pursue the one that thinks God would never accept them. And here's where the power really comes from. Here's where the power to melt our hearts that tend towards apathy. If you're like me, it is so easy to be passionless. That was the same passion that God had in pursuing you and me. The same heart that he has now. For the people who do not yet know his heart is the heart that you and I have if we have followed Jesus. What that frees you and me from is thinking that we need to do something to earn God's joy over us. All the sheep did was get lost. And the father throws it on his back and brings it in, back to town, and throws a party. I want to challenge you, just like I challenge myself, to believe that your coming home to Jesus, your being lifted up on Jesus the Good Shepherd's shoulders, and brought into the presence of the Father, was a reason for all of heaven to celebrate. It's a pretty intimidating thing to accept, I think. Because we are so keenly aware of all the things we don't even like about ourselves that we have a really hard time accepting that God could be able to overlook those things and celebrate us as, as our Father in Heaven. And receive us with gladness. But Jesus is that shepherd. He's the shepherd that came after you. In your lostness, and before we get confused on the term lostness, it can't mean moral, sterile, religious behavior. That's the whole point of Jesus' parable, just to cut that out. Lostness implies you were created for something, you were possessed by something, and then you weren't. But the one who wants you is seeking you. Being lost is a dignifying term because it means you are desired. It means you are wanted back. And I wonder if we look out into the world, into our workplace, into our classroom, into our neighborhood, our apartment complex. And if we look at the people who don't yet know Jesus, who don't yet know the life that is found in the one who made them for life in him. And can say, they are lost. But that's what Jesus says. We were made for life in him. In him, he is the way, the truth, and the life, right? And so, what we get to do is we get to say, Lord, help me receive your heart for me. The heart of the kingdom received by you for me. Tear down every barrier that wants to resist. You couldn't possibly rejoice over me because then it means I would need to just be okay with who I am right now. And I don't know if I can live with that. But that will spark your heart. From apathy to passion. Because then, we don't need to give ourselves to all the stuff, all the burdens, all the pressure that the world heaps on us. All the expectations of our parents and our professors and our bosses. Our okayness is rooted in God's passionate pursuit and rejoicing over us. So there are two things that I want for us this morning that I think God wants for us this morning, reading this about his own heart. The heart of the kingdom is to passionately pursue the lost. To passionately pursue the lost. So much so that the world looks at our passionate pursuit of the lost and says, you've left the 99. What are you doing, dude? And so we got to take worldly wisdom and set it aside and say there's a place for that. We want to be stewards, but we can't let earthly stewardship dictate over and against the passionate pursuit of the lost that's the heartbeat of the kingdom. Two shifts for us this morning. One is from apathy to passion. If we are apathetic, our all of our zeal will be sapped and we'll look at worldly wisdom and say, well, of course I want to pursue the lost around me. Of course, I want to see the people that I know and love, love Jesus, but, and our whole value structure apart from passion and zeal and conviction will be out of whack. So here's what passion does. When I say passion, what I'm not talking about is all of us being the kind of personality type that's really extroverted and is really gregarious and is just outward facing but a kind of controlled conviction about what ought to be and is not yet. To say, the God of the universe has created the people around me for communion with him, for finding life in him, and they are confused and enslaved in the darkness to things of the world and to all the different powers that want to do all sorts of things except give life to image bearers of God. God's heart is passionately pursuing them, is leaning in. I do not want to be the reason that the people around me don't know about God's heart for them. In fact, I must not be the reason that people don't know about God's heart for them. And what the must of passion and zeal forces us to do is to deal with the right ordering of how we think about how we live. Because the minute we tell people about the love of Jesus, we're afraid that we're painted into a particular corner of what their idea of a Christian is. The minute that we associate with Jesus, suddenly we might start to be afraid about the way that our boss perceives us and the next promotion that might be coming up. And what passion does and conviction does is it frames our vision according to God's vision of reality. And friends, that's just what reality is. The word that will last is the one that God speaks. Not the one that your boss says. Not the ones that your friends say. The ones that God says. I think that apathy is one of the root causes for a loss of us loving the lost around us. in I'm talking our context. In you and me. Because we are just so weighed down. We're so caught up in trying to cope with life and its stresses with consuming stuff. And then we're just needing more of it tomorrow. And then needing more of it the next day. And then needing more of it the next day. We try and numb our sufferings. And rather than living full-hearted with the passion that God would have for us, we just start to get apathetic. And apathy and coldness will never, will never be the kind of fuel that can get us to take risks for the kingdom. But risk is out on the, the front lines where God himself is. Jesus is pursuing the tax collectors and sinners, the outsiders and the lost and the least around us. And what that means is he's inviting us to participate with him in his pursuit. And so how's your heart this morning? Do you feel more apathy like me? Okay, I'll be totally honest. My, my heart, my gut level where passion resides is like a furnace that goes cold so fast, okay? I have to stoke it. I start praying, and I'm saying the right words, but there's no energy and zeal in them. Now, I don't think that's necessarily a moral thing. Again, I'm not saying you need to be a, particularly type, a particular type of personality. But zeal does matter because zeal reflects desire, and desire is a moral thing. God, the world isn't like, like imagine, If I'm praying for my neighbor, Lord, would you please save, um, would you please save Spencer? Would you please save Homa and Millie? Um, Open their eyes to see you. I trust you. Amen. Okay? That's one particular way of praying for them. That's a good thing. That's much better than not praying for them. But prayer that, that says in its longing, Lord, please save Spencer and Millie. Have mercy on them. Why haven't you saved them yet? I've spoken to you about them. I'm calling on your promises. You've told me your heart in, in the parable of the 99 and the one. You went for the one. They are the one. Pursue them. The reason that matters, the reason that matters is because God is not a vending machine, but a father. Okay? If my kids come to me and say, hey, dad, can, uh, can I have some food? I'm like, no, I gave you food five minutes ago. Why do you still need food? But if my kid comes to me and says, "Dad, please, I need food so bad. I need it so badly. You know, I'll ask him, how long has it been? I haven't eaten in in a whole day. Oh, please, here's food, right? That kind of passion doesn't arise just from not having eaten for five minutes. That passion arises from longing, from craving, from hunger. And as our father in heaven, one of God's ambitions for us as his children is to mature us. And maturing us is us becoming more like Jesus. And Jesus was a passionate image bearer. I don't know if I want to say uh, The passionate son of God. And as he took on human flesh, he was motivated by a burning passion to see Lost people welcome home to God. And so, quite frankly, here's what I think. Here's how how I think God holds his answers to our prayers. We hear what scripture says, pursue the lost. So we say, all right, I can can pray. Lord, would you please save so-and-so and and save so-and-so and and save so-and-so? And... We are not yet made into the image of Jesus in that prayer. And so God withholds answer to that prayer. Because God's not just concerned with good things being given to us. He is also concerned with us being made more like Jesus so that he can entrust more of his power and authority to us so that he can do even more than save the few people that we're praying for. He wants you to be interruptible in your daily life and have Jesus bleed out of you. And so he holds it. And then we say, wait a second, God, but you said and you still haven't done it. And I asked you, what's going on? Our two options are apathy, thinking God just does not fulfill his promises or he only fulfills them for some people or the fire starts to burn. Because we see his promises and we see our lives and the things that we've asked him for and they haven't met yet. And God's inviting us to stoke the flame. He is inviting us to become more like Jesus. He's inviting us to have kingdom vision and the heart of the kingdom more than just trying to navigate between the big promises of God and the sad reality of our world and trying to make it through still believing. James 5 says that Elijah was a man like us. A man like you and me. But he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and that it would rain. And God withheld rain for years, and God gave rain. That little word, fervently, is really interesting to me. And I think it's what is being talked about here. The kind of zeal and passion that goes to pursue the lost and give themselves to the lost, knowing that the Father's heart is to pursue the lost, and the Son led us in the example to pursue the lost, and Jesus in John 20, verse 21, said, As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. So I want to challenge you and me to say, I hear God's promise to save the lost. I don't see it yet, if that's you. I will not give in to apathy and coldness. I want to be like Jacob, one who wrestles with God. Did you know that the name Israel means one who wrestles with God? God is very okay with you calling him out on his promises that he hasn't yet fulfilled. And actually, that's kind of what he wants. Because in that process, you and I become more like Jesus. The second transition is from apathy to passion. The second transition is from looking upward to looking downward. Um, Jesus was not content with the religious leaders. He was not coming to just bless them, give them a little level up in their spirituality. Jesus went for the people who were marginalized and outcast. There's a reason for that. Because the marginalized and the outcast are open-hearted and hungry for something. Maybe we haven't seen people meet Jesus around us. Maybe we haven't seen the lost found because we're prioritizing the wrong people. This gets a little uncomfortable, but it's the testimony of the New Testament. Paul, when he's speaking to the first Corinthians, or to the first Corinthians, when he's speaking to the Corinthians, he says, hey guys, not many of you were of noble birth. Not many of you were accounted wise in the eyes of the world. Not many of you were, and he just kind of lists off. What he's trying to say is, God seeks out the people on the periphery, the people who have been oppressed and kicked out of all the positions of power and influence in the world because he's mad about it. There's injustice all over the place. And so when Jesus comes and says, blessed are the poor for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. What he's saying is, my kingdom belongs to those who are open to it And you want to know who's open to it? Everyone on the perimeter of the kingdom of this world. I remember when um, one of my first experiences in ministry was with a ministry back in my hometown. I'd gone home for the summer from college after meeting Jesus. And the, the mentor there, the kind of leader, he said, here's our strategy. We get the quarterback of the high school football team and then everyone else follows. That's our strategy for seeing a bunch of people meet Jesus. Here's the problem with that strategy. The quarterbacks don't often choose Jesus, and if they do, it's because there's some social arrangement so that it's pretty cool to be a Christian. That's funny to us now because it's not the case anymore, but in my hometown, it was kind of like that. That's not Jesus' strategy. That shouldn't be our strategy. So this week, what I did was intentionally tried to say, Lord, where in the spaces where I am, where I am around lost people all the time. I play basketball with them. We go to a game shop on Saturday nights where we're playing this Disney card game with them. (laughs) We have neighbors. And guess who I found myself naturally gravitating towards? The people that everybody else was gravitating towards. And then I looked around And I saw the guy sitting by himself over in the corner just waiting for the next basketball game. Those are the people. That's the one, not the 99. We don't have, like, religion isn't our thing anymore. We're not, like, building up these powerful social environments that are contingent on your moral cleanness spiritually. What we do need to do is say, What motivates us to ask when we're invited to a party, who's at the party? We're asking, are the 99 at the party? We want to know if the people at the party are people that can help us or people that we enjoy being around. And most of the time, it's not the people that are kind of hard to be around. It's not the people that we have have difficulty with. It's the people that we want to be around. That's us looking upward in ascendancy. And Jesus calls us to look downward towards the people just like us when he came to us because that's where his heart is. And those are the people that are going to hear the good news as good news. So who around you, what spaces around you do you need to flip that hierarchy? And who do you need to pursue this week? How do you need to fan into flame passion in your heart that things are not the way that God wants them to be and you are his plan A because you have his spirit in you and who are the people on the perimeter, the periphery of the spaces that you're in? Who's the person that no one wants to study with? Who's the person no one wants on their basketball team? Who's the neighbor that's a little crotchety and difficult to deal with? Go to them. Build relationship with them. And we have a really easy model for what we do to build those relationships of meaning with them. We welcome them and we eat with them. And then we speak Jesus to them. It really is simple when we think about pursuing the lost around us. Welcoming someone and looking at them with all of your gaze as though you have nothing more important to be doing in that moment than them will grip people in our city with big flashy billboards and buzzing uh, devices in our pockets all the time, welcoming people and giving them the dignity that God made them with, and then eating with them, bringing them into your life enough that you are willing to eat on a level playing field with them. Think about the people that would be most shocked if you invited them to dinner. And maybe invite them to dinner. Maybe that's the power that the Spirit will use to to get them curious and then just be really open about Jesus in your life. Don't hide him. Don't try and like find the perfect time to just be like, oh man, well my week was, my week was good. Uh, my Seahawks won, that was exciting. Uh, I, I had a good run at the basketball court, that was fun. Work's going all right. And man, church on Sunday. <laughs> Staff Elder Devin, amazing talk, <laughs> felt Jesus. Don't, mention, don't you dare mention my name but you get what I'm saying. We're just living holistically saying, like this is my life with Jesus and I'm open about it in the same way that I'm open with other areas of my life about it. And then offer to pray for them in anything where there's brokenness. And watch as the power of Jesus who is pursuing the lost floods into their life through little old you because you have the spirit and God the Father is creating you to be more like Jesus who pursues the lost around you. Amen? That's the heart of the kingdom. And here's what happens to us. Here's why. This is not legalism. This is not him just heaping commands on us. You want to know what some of the greatest moments of joy in my heart have been? Seeing people have their eyes opened to Jesus who didn't know that he was real and pursuing them and life with God was possible. You can worship Jesus all you want. You can pray to Jesus all you want. But there is a room in the heart of life with God that is closed off until you are watching Him work through you in the life of someone else. There is joy and joy to the full in that. And that's what I want for you and for me. He's so real, He can work through you in the life of someone else. Will we? participate? That's the question, and that's why we're going to pray now. So we're going to pray as we normally do. Congregational prayer, if you're new with us, we're just going to open up space about 10 minutes now, and we are going to pray individually, out loud, one at a time. Um, Here's what I feel like we need need to do. Um, Apathy and just kind of acknowledging God's truth, but resigned to thinking he won't Fulfill it. Um, Self protectiveness is combated by surrender. <clears throat> and so, what I want for us uh, is just to be honest with God right now about our doubts, about why we may not be feeling passion right now. And so, there are a few things that you can do. You can open up your heart to disappointment, or you can open up to uh, the disappointment that maybe you have in God not fulfilling His promises when you've tried to be faithful. You could just give over and surrender your suffering or your sin to him and say, Lord, I'm having a really hard time with this right now, but I want to trust you in the midst of this, and I want to be faithful to your promises even in the midst of this. Or maybe it's needing to lay down your own glory in your life right now, the thing that you're just really proud about in your life right now that's getting in the way and that you're afraid of losing in having this kingdom heart like Jesus.
0: Thanks for listening. We hope you found this week's episode encouraging and strengthening in your walk with Jesus. For more information on how you can get connected at The Commons LA, please check us out online at thecommonsla.com. There's a lot of great information there. Also, we'd love to have you join us at one of our church gatherings on Sunday mornings at 10am at Upside Down Cafe in Westwood Village. We hope you'll continue to enjoy these podcast episodes.